Well, good morning, church. My name is Ross, and it's a tremendous privilege to be able to be with you here to share God's word um, with the Austin Stone together. We are one church that has six congregations around the city, and so while it's my joy to be at our downtown congregation today in the new kitted out uh, gymnasium, which looks super fly and quite bougie, um, we're also broadcasting this message uh, to our congregations around the city, and so they get to experience me um, in two-dimensional form, which I have been told is my best form. Um, Um, by far, I tend to be quite disappointing um, in the flesh, and that's something I've been dealing with for 43 years, and so thanks for noticing that um, and raising that. It's our final sermon in our four-year-long study of Matthew's gospel. Many said we wouldn't get there before Christ's return, but unless he decides to do that in the next 35 minutes, um, we will get this sucker down. That's 131 sermons spread across those four years. That's approximately 425,000 preached words. And you'll remember six or seven of them if we did really well. Um, But it's been so fun. It's been all focused on the magnetic life of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's been so helpful for us. What comes next? Well, we're going to spend 11 weeks studying the life of David, who is a very complicated king but who has a very faithful God. I'd encourage you to come join us as we walk through, especially 1st and 2nd Samuel. If you know his story at all, you know that it'll be like an HBO Max show, um, but with a great soundtrack, because he wrote some incredible songs. Uh, Today, we get to the conclusion of Matthew's record of the life of Jesus Christ. We come to some of the final known words that we have from Jesus before he ascends to the Father. It's known in church circles as the great commission. Now, don't roll your eyes. Don't even roll the eyes of your heart, right? I'm the expert at that. I can tell if you're doing that um, from up here. But stop for a second and contemplate. I know that if you've been in church for more than 15 minutes, you know these verses. You may even know them off by heart, and you presume that you know exactly what they mean, and so you think you can just dial out for the next half an hour or so. But think about it for a second. That this is the mission that the resurrected Christ gives to his beloved disciples with some of his final words. Think about how careful you want to be with some of your final words to those you love on this earth. He could tell them anything in this moment. He's already proven to them who he was through his resurrection and this is what he chooses to say to them. And this, dear friends, is what he chooses to say to us. And so I'm just going to read it through. I'm going to make some commentary for some texture as we go. And then I'm going to come back and make three simple learning observations for us today. Verse 16 of Matthew 28. Let's go. Now the 11 disciples, right? There were 12. Um, uh, We've spoken already and taught already on what happened to Judas. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Now, if you're nerdy enough, and that's a big assumption, right? There is a fascinating theme of mountaintop teachings and moments from Jesus where Matthew is very clearly doing something thematic. He's clearly portraying Christ as the new and better Moses, right? So Moses would go 
up the mountain and commune with God and then would come back and teach people how they, live, how they ought to live, right? Jesus is the new and better Moses who, who communes with God on the mountain and then presents the ethic of the kingdom to the people. We see this in the mountaintop of his temptation in chapter four. We see it in the mountaintop of the Sermon on the Mount in chapters five to seven. We see it in the mountain that he goes to to be alone in chapter 14. We see it in the mountain where he also gathers people to himself in chapter 15. We see it magnificently displayed in the mountaintop of his transfiguration in chapter 17. And of course, we see it on Golgotha, that hill on which he was sacrificed for us. Like I said, total nerd stuff, but really, really cool in trying to understand the narrative that Matthew was outlining for his primarily Jewish audience, right? The mount of his sermon shows us the ethics of the kingdom. The mount of his transfiguration shows us clearly who is the king of this kingdom. And now we get the mount of his great commission, which teaches us the mission for which all kingdom citizens, including you and I, are to live. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they, the disciples, see him, the resurrected Christ, was very much dead and now is very much alive, right? They worshiped him. Now, if that verse stopped there, you'd go like, makes sense, right? Someone walks out of the grave, the king of the universe, you get to worship them. But then look at the next three words. But some doubted. (laughs) Is there a more powerful text in all of scripture to destroy our arguments which claim that we would certainly have faith if God would just reveal himself to us in some miraculous way? If he would just show up and just reveal in a powerful way. If you would just orchestrate some circumstances, then my faith would be alive and I would follow him forever, right? I grew up in church. And so I, I know what, what it looks like to, to, to inherit a faith from your parents and then at some point to go like, wait, do I believe this? And I can remember clearly at 17 years old trying to figure out if I believed this. And so I set two tasks before the Lord. And I said, if you fulfill either of these tasks, I am all yours. I'll be a missionary. I'll go whatever. I'll even be a pastor. You can send me to Austin, Texas if you really like. I'm all in, right? The first task, because I was sitting at my desk, I should have been studying um, for a math exam, right? We call it maths because it's mathematics. You guys abbreviate everything, I love it, so it's math. Um, and so I was studying for a, uh, a math, studying for a math exam and I saw my pencil sitting on the end of the table and I was like, if you're the God of the universe, right, then, then the natural order exists under your control. Just move that pencil, put it in my hand, right? And he didn't. I was like, but if you do it, I'm all in. He was like, but what if I don't, right? The other task I set before him was even more miraculous. I asked him that, that a particular girl in my grade would begin to love me. Um, and I was like, Lord, if you can do that, if she shows up at church on Sunday uninvited and just declares, hey, I, I've loved you from the beginning, then Lord, I'm all yours. And he was like, you're asking too much, right? Um, we can move mountains. I can keep someone alive in the belly of a whale. I can do all of these things. That, that cannot be done. Have you met 17-year-old you? Okay, no one likes you, not even you. So um, especially not you, you can't do it, right? But I set these tests and I assumed if he answered those tests, then my faith would come alive, right? But friends, not even the resurrection from the dead is enough for some. He appears before people in physical form and some are like, yeah, I don't know. I still just don't know. But look at the posture of Christ even to the doubting, verse 18. And Jesus came and said 
to them. The verbiage there in the Greek is so interesting. It's directional, right? Jesus came towards them. He moves towards them and he speaks to them. This is amazing. The resurrected Christ moves himself even towards the doubting, perhaps especially towards the doubting. In John's account, this is the moment when he says, come, touch my wounds, right? Come see my side, come see my hands. He continues to reveal who he is even to those who aren't sure. But then look what he does next. He gives them mission and purpose and value and tells them to go live it out in faith. He's so kind. I mean, think about it. These doubts must have been exasperating. Think about what these cats have seen. Water into wine, right? Feeding of the 5,000. And now the resurrection of the dead. And they're like, I don't know. I just don't know. I just don't. It must be so frustrating. And yet he doesn't get exasperated with their unbelief. Instead, what does he do? He reminds them one final time of who he is. And then he sends them out. Friends, listen. It's okay if you have some doubts, Right? But the posture of Jesus is that he moves towards you in that and he says, the resurrection must be enough. Now go. Our response shouldn't be one of ongoing doubt, of more doubt, of continued cynicism, of more questioning. We should then respond to the resurrected Christ in faith by being sent out by him because that is the posture that Jesus loves. We have placed cynicism as one of the highest virtues in our culture, right? And I understand it, I'm cynical of so many things. But at some point, friends, regardless of your doubts and your wrestles, the resurrected Christ is just gonna have to be enough. Because if that isn't enough, nothing will be. Absolutely nothing will be. Look at what he says to them. All authority, hey doubters, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth, don't you love the way he presents this? Has been given to me. We'll come back to this in a minute or so, but it's so incredible. All authority has been given to Jesus. Not to you, not to us. (laughs) If he had said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you, that wouldn't be a great commission. That would be a great burden. He has all the authority because he's the only one who walked out of the grave, right? The guy who walks out of the grave gets to call the shots. And so all authority rests with him. He has it. Friends, this creates a confidence that isn't from us or in us or on us, right? You're disappointed with the church? So am I, and it pays my salary, right? But all authority doesn't rest with us. All authority rests with Christ. And that ought to lead to a boldness to live out what he says next, which is the mission statement for every single Christian on the planet. You ready? Here's your mission statement. You're gonna go, ooh, I know this one. It's live, laugh, love. I saw it at Hobby Lobby, right? That's the, the, the mission statement of every Christian. No, it's not. Hey, here it comes. Go, therefore, and make disciples, followers, apprentices of Jesus of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them, right? This truth that needs to be taught to observe that that word could equally be translated, obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age, right? Three brief observations for today. Just note with me the command of the commission, the context of the commission, and the covenant of the commission. We know that those are spirit-led because they are alliterated. Um, We were on a team uh, retreat this week and I asked someone to come up with either alliterated or rhyming flow that would be the crux of the sermon. And our social media lead, uh, Rachel Ray, just came up with, yo bro, go. 
Um, and so I rejected that as not from the spirit um, and asked the Lord uh, to teach us again. She's great. She's a lot of fun. Pray for her. All right. First one, the command of the commission, the command of the commission. What are we actually instructed to obey in the great commission? Well, friends, you see the church throughout history has a habit of making simple things complicated. Have you noticed that? We also have a habit of making complicated things overly simple, but that's a sermon for another day. We don't actually have as much of a problem understanding what the Bible says as we have a problem doing what we know it says we should do. And so we come up with complicated ways to understand it, right? And to explain it away and to make sure that we don't really have to obey it, right? It says very clearly, love your neighbor. And what do we do? Well, define love and define neighbor and define your, right? If you can do all of those and we get together in Bible studies and pretend we understand Greek and we go through all of that together and what do we come up with? Basically, we don't have to do any of it because no one's my neighbor. Love is love. I saw it on a yard sign, right? And your can be theirs, right? Not mine. And so my situation, my circumstance is too difficult for me to love my neighbor and so I'm not gonna do it, right? And so that's what we do. We explain away these simple things. I discovered this afresh when I found commentary after commentary. The Christian publishing scene is amazing. And even some whole books on the Greek sentence structure of the Great Commission. If you're gonna write a book, right? Like devote your life to academia. A whole book on the Greek sentence structure. Why? Because when we read it in English, it seems like it has four instructions, right? If you just break it down. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach, right? But the grammar of the Greek is interesting, and I use that term very, very liberally. Um, It turns out that people find lots of different things interesting. I was an English teacher, and I nodded off at my desk um, several times this week. But there are some hugely pastoral implications that I think we need to press into. So let's dip our toe into the water of the grammar of the commandment of the Great Commission. You see, there is one imperative which is the main verb. There is actually one main master instruction in the original language of the Great Commission. Do you know which one it is? It's this one. Helpful? You go, how do you say that? I go, I don't know. Um, And I'm not gonna try to pretend. At my former church, I had a Greek scholar who actually read the New Testament in Greek. And every time I said something about the Greek, he would come up afterwards and go, incorrect, right? And so what I then started to do was I just asked him. And so I'd email him every week, what does the Greek say? And he's like, you're not man enough to handle it, right? Okay, you don't understand, rather just deal with the English text, right? But this is actually a fascinating word. It's the one that we translate, make disciples, That is the imperative in the sentence. What holds the sentence together is that command. Go, make disciples. The big command that the resurrected Christ gives to weak and doubting disciples is go and make more disciples. Now now that's a big deal. That's the big commanding posture of the Christian life. That we would, all of us, invite people into the way of Jesus, our master. Into the grand adventure of being his apprentice. Into the wonderful life to the fullest that it means to be his disciple, his follower, obeying him, walking like him. Now this, of course, implies that we ourselves should be living a life of following Jesus. See, here's what we've done in so much of organized religion, sometimes with the best intentions in the world. We have taken the instruction to make disciples and we turned it into a far simpler instruction, which is make a decision, 
right? We can measure that one. I see that hand, right? Every eye closed, right? And so that we can get, people can put their hand up every week and it goes on the scoreboard and it's wonderful. Make a decision, we tell people. And then because we don't disciple them, we say, you just make a decision in a moment and then go live however you like. It doesn't impact your ethic. It doesn't impact your morality. It doesn't impact your generosity. It doesn't impact your culture. It doesn't impact your worldview. Go live like that. And as long as you attend regularly and give regularly and you sit on our decision roll, Jesus be praised. That was never the invitation that Jesus gave to people. He said, no, no, come walk with me. In other words, be like me. And so when we read through the Gospel of Matthew and we see how magnetic and how um, magnificent Christ is, that's the life that we're called not just to stand in awe of, but the life that we're called to emulate and to imitate and to walk alongside with. You see, the, the invitation to be a disciple is an invitation to upend your life completely. <laughs> and to follow a totally different path from the one you would ordinarily follow, the path of Jesus. And then to invite others into that path and to enable their effective walking in it through discipleship. How? You guys still interested in Greek grammar? Well, there are three supporting participles that support the main verb. The three supporting participles of disciple making are going, or as you go, baptizing, as you baptize, and teaching, as you teach. Here is why that matters, right? Here's why we would spend 10 minutes pulling apart a Greek sentence. There are actually a couple of incorrect and I think harmful ways to read this commission. The first harmful way means that only professional Christians and cross-cultural missionaries can obey the Great Commission. Everyone else by default lives in disobedience because if we make go the main imperative and we say that go means to a context other than your own, then if you don't go to that context, you are by default disobedient. (laughs) and not being a disciple of Jesus Christ. This makes everyone else in the church feel second rate at best, disobedient at worst. I can remember when I was a youth pastor um, back in the the good old days um, uh, in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we had one of our cross-cultural missionaries come talk to our youth group, and this brother was incredible. I loved him, full of zeal, kind of crazy eyes, right? And there's no doubt that he was just following the Lord with his whole heart. I loved him dearly. And and he was on mission uh, in, in Uzbekistan, and he'd given his life to it, sacrificed so much, and I just, I respected him so much. And he came and he led our youth group and he told story after story of life on the mission field. And we were like, wow, this is unbelievable. And then he said to a bunch of 15-year-old kids, unless you go, you are disobedient. And they were like, what? What? And he was particularly to his team in Uzbekistan that was there in the subtlety of the instruction, go to Uzbekistan. Um, And so I went and spoke to him afterwards and I said, but what if you're not called to go? And he said, impossible. Impossible. Or for me, friends, that is an incorrect reading of this text. When we say that you can't obey the Great Commission by not leaving your own context um, to go pursue it elsewhere, I can feel it in the room, people breathing a deep sigh of relief. They're like, man, I thought this was going to go another direction. But wait, there's an equal and opposite error. I feel like the church has responded to that, particularly in the West over the last like 20 years or so. And we've realized what this means. And so there's been a lot of sermons on participles by people who aren't Greek students, right? That essentially turned everything into obedience of the word go. Instead of highlighting the word go as the main verb, we ignored it. (laughs) 
and pretended like it wasn't there, which seriously undermined the value of those like my brother who had committed their lives to being cross-cultural missionaries, right? I'm not sure there's a harder thing you can do in the world. And it undermined their values. And then it made everything into going, which you know what that meant? No one was actually going anywhere. We had missional cappuccinos, right? And and missional music and art. No one was actually sharing the gospel with anybody. (laughs) And churches weren't seeing anybody come to Christ because no one was going. Here's my simple way of understanding the command. You ready? You cannot obey the imperative unless you embrace the supporting participles. You can't obey the imperative to make disciples unless you embrace the supporting participles to go and to baptize and to teach. The mission of your life, friends, if you're a Christian, listen, regardless of your maturity, the mission of your life is to make disciples of Jesus Christ to devote yourself to seeing others come to know him, to trust him, to follow him, and to obey him. You cannot fulfill that mission unless you have a posture of being sent into it. Let me say it for the people at the back more simply, right? Saved people are sent people. Saved people are sent people. You can't make disciples without being commissioned to go do it and then doing it with intentionality, going with purpose, right, as a sent one, whether that sentness is into Syria or into Cedar Park, right, and those two are strangely alike. Baptizing, right, sharing the the, the gospel and helping people to identify their lives with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This, This is why these are the greatest moments in our church experiences, right? We get to see people saying, no, I identify myself with the literal death and burial and literal resurrection of Jesus Christ who saved me. Teaching through your life and through the opening of your mouth and the sharing of the word what it looks like to become more and more like Jesus. Saved people are sent people. Who has God sent you to? Or who is God sending you to? And are you obeying? For some of you, that is a cross-cultural call. Are you obeying? Are you open-handed before the Lord on that? Is there fruit? How's it going? In the parallel passage of the story in John 20, I love it. Look at what it says, verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord and Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Now remember who these disciples were. A ragamuffin bunch of nobodies who had just disobeyed in an elaborate, extravagant way. He says, as the Father has sent me, (laughs) even so I am sending you. Don't you love the posture of God? We serve a sent and sending God, a missionary God who creates and calls and commissions a missionary impulsed people. You see, Christ came to get us. He didn't wait for us to go to him to figure it out. He, he was sent. And then he invited us into this journey of eternal life. But as he does, at the same moment, he also commissions us to participate in the sharing of that life with others. That's the command, friends. Saved people are sent people. Now listen, I know some of you find this element of Christian life gross or even offensive, right? Reason for that is we buy so into the worldview of the day. Who are we to suggest to others that there is a better way 
to live? Shouldn't we just live and let live? And if they want to come to Christ, they know where to find me, right? Maybe. Um, uh, I'll be having brunch, right? So isn't that the way that we're supposed to do it? Well, friends, that's actually a very postmodern way of viewing the world. And it, and it does a couple of things simultaneously. Firstly, it undermines the value of Christ and his death and burial and resurrection. You're saying it's not the best news in the world. If you genuinely love people, you want to share the best news in the world, surely, right? We share our diets and our workout regime and, and, and latest dance craze and fashion trends. We, we share things that we're excited about. This is the greatest news in the world. And so if we refuse to share it, we're saying it's less than that, right? That is not for everybody. But secondly, we're actually imposing a global narrative in our attempt to not impose a global narrative. (laughs) We're saying that the overarching truth is that people need to find their own way and we want others to accept that. And so we look open-minded, we're actually being extremely closed-minded in our refusal to share this very message that Christ has called us to share. Look with me at seven seven implications of living this way. Saved people, or send people. I'll go through them very quickly. Firstly, life has a sense of purpose and divine adventure. You want your life to count for something, don't you? We all want to be part of some grand drama. Well, if we live this way, then we're acknowledging that we get to partner with God in the greatest drama on earth. You bored? Oh, you can't be on God's great mission to redeem the world and be bored with your life. Save people or send people. Second one, There's no distinction between sacred and secular calls, right? Aren't some Christians called to mission and others not? Aren't some activities that are missional and others that aren't? No, friends, there's no such thing as Sunday Christianity or accommodating the gospel in your already busy and distracted life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that we can eat and drink to the glory of God. You're like, oh, I don't think I've been doing that. But you can. It's astonishing, right? You can do anything in the world for God's glory and renowned. Thirdly, Christians now in the posture of sentness, this is fun, right? It's going to offend some of you, but it's fun. They become cultural infiltration agents instead of cultural evacuation agents, right? I grew up needing we needed to be evacuated from the culture, that the enemy was culture, that the enemy was the world, and so we wanted to escape into this other subculture. That's why Christians become so weird, right? It's how they become so inward and strange and peculiar. If the church exists as an inward-facing social club, it's the lamest one in the whole world, right? Its fees are high, right? Its perks are low. It's very, very strange. But if this is a place where we breathe life into you and then send you out into the world, then this becomes the place where you get reinvigorated, filled with life, reminded of the realities of God. When we send cross-cultural missionaries, what do we say to them? Don't go hate the culture. Don't exclude yourself from it. Go learn it. Go study. Go understand. Go show respect. Go build relationship. Why would that be different here? Fourth one, our homes, dorm rooms, whatever they might be, become mission stations. Because where you live matters and how you live there matters. Uh, Why are you in Austin in the middle of this crazy boom right now? Well, you're here for a reason. You've been sent by the Lord. If you have a young family, you don't even have to look far for the start of your mission field. You aren't supposed to just be parenting your children. You're supposed to be discipling them. You don't get to go home to escape the work that God has for you. That home is where the very work of God takes place. Fifth one, our money. You're like, what money? I feel you, right? Our money becomes mission ammunition. 
Oh, now it's not just something I store up. Now it's something that I get to point in a direction and say, fire away. Let's shoot some big holes in the gates of hell together. I'll provide the ammo, right? And it becomes this liberating thing. Every time we open our wallet to give, we take shots at those rickety old gates. It's pure joy. 6-1, our work, whew, even mine, becomes a missionary assignment. Now your work matters, right? You start that missionary assignment by being the best worker you can be. Because the last thing your boss needs is another slacker telling him about Jesus, right? But friends, we live in an increasingly post-Christian society, so we have more and more opportunities. We love sending people to unreached people groups across the seas. We'll talk about that more in a second. But your office, Google, it's kind of like an unreached people group, right? You might be the only believer there. This means there's no nine to five cubicle drudgery. This is grand assignment. It's wonderful. Seventh one. And then we'll get on to our second point. It's complicated. It's math, right? (laughs) Seventh one. Our community becomes a mission alliance. See, Christian community shouldn't just be a place to be weird together. It's a place where we disciple each other for the mission field of the life that God has called us to, right? What this means, friends, is that your community shouldn't be ghettoized. It should always include people who have crossed the line of faith and people who haven't because you're inviting them into this great adventure of following Jesus together. You might go, gosh, I'm out of time, okay. Who actually lives like this? Well, I got an email this week from some friends of mine who are partners at the West Congregation. Incredible, incredible people. Sue and I, whenever we hear from them, we're like, are we real Christians? They seem like the real Christians. They should be paid. Um, You shouldn't be paid, Sue says to me. Um, They should be paid, right? She's like, I like that you be paid, but you shouldn't be. And he sent me this email and he told me, hey, he had changed some of his work rhythms because he wanted to be more intentional in his neighborhood and he wanted to be more intentional in discipling his children. And so uh, changed his job, changed his work rhythms. You might go, well, what a luxury. Sure, but he leveraged it, right? And what that meant was he was home every day when the delivery guy from a particular company was coming and delivering goods at his house. And he started to realize, hey, the same guy delivers boxes to my house every day because I'm American and I order stuff every day, right? Um, And so that's the same person. And so he just started standing outside, which for me, if I was the delivery guy, worst nightmare scenario, right? Because I'm like, bro, just go inside. I put the box down. We don't have to do this thing, right? But they struck up a friendship and a relationship. He invited them over to dinner, invited them into this great adventure of following Jesus Christ in their home and he came and he came to dinner and enjoyed his family and then he invited him to a Good Friday service right at the church and he came to the Good Friday service and then he invited him to to a burger joint afterwards to talk about the narrative of Good Friday together with this brother and this brother made a decision that he too wanted to be a disciple of Jesus Christ simply because someone saw their life as sent They just viewed it as, no, no, I'm sent to this context. And there's a reason that this same guy comes to my door every single day for the glory and renown of Jesus Christ. You see the adventure? All right, two more points to go, and I'm already over time. As I said, I shouldn't be paid. Second one, what's the context of the commission? If we say the command is save people or send people, does that mean we're off the hook in terms of going to other places? Does that mean we're off the hook in terms of supporting and sending others to go to other places? Not at all. Consider the context of the commission. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
What this means there is of all people groups, ethnicities, tribes of the earth. We are, friends, listen, in many ways recipients of the obedience of this message. I know, having lived here for a few years, that the US can feel like the center of the world. But when this commission was given, none of the recipients of the commission even knew that we existed. You're like, how could that be? But people kept going, and they kept telling, and they kept inviting, and they kept making disciples, and Christ kept his authority, and people took Jesus at his word, and we have benefited from that, and it can't stop with us. Jesus is saying, the news is so good. I want it to be proclaimed to every tribe and in every tongue across every nation. Share it, get it out there, invite others in. If you love people, and if you love diversity, good, then you would surely want to see all sorts of people (laughs) invited into the greatest news in the history of the cosmos. And so friends, at the stone, we are unashamedly passionate about sending people to places uh, where, where Jesus is neither named nor known. They're called unreached people groups, right? There's, there's no established church. There's no way for a person in the regular rhythms of their life to encounter a Christian. Our hearts beat for it. We're passionate about it. And the Lord has been so kind to us over all these years as we've just simply tried to obey that. Hundreds of people have gone from this place to the far-flung nations of the world. Today, friends, as you consider this call, I would love for you to take up the opportunity we are giving you to just celebrate the faithfulness of God uh, uh, to and through our church. But just when you leave this auditorium today at the six congregations um, across the city, just find someone in a green t-shirt that says For the Nations on it and ask them for a For the Nations field guide. It's a wonderfully printed resource that just tells incredible stories. In that, just get one today, right? You will read of a history of the conviction that our church has in this area and how God has been faithful to deliver supernatural results to obedience to that conviction. Guys, there are some truly bananas numbers in there. That's bananas, right, for context, right, so that that you can understand. One One that stood out to me was that since 2017, just dial in, right? Since 2017, our goers sent from this church who are working amongst the most unreached peoples on the planet saw 45,609 people say yes to a life of being a disciple of Jesus. But I actually wasn't even most encouraged by the numbers. I was most encouraged by the stories of the people who just said yes to God's call. To go, and to obey this commission in another context. So let me say a couple of things. Firstly, to our goers out there, to those in the field who are listening in today, gosh, we're cheering you on. We love you. We see you. Your obedience to Christ isn't measured in numbers of responses. Your obedience is simply your yes to his call. Remember, all authority belongs to him. The outcomes are his. Thank you for your faithfulness. Press on. Keep saying yes to this great commission. Secondly, to some who have said yes to this and now are back here in the US. These are some of my favorite people in our church. People who have said yes, they've gone, they've experienced difficult things. And in God's sovereignty and in his providence, they found themselves now back in the US and they're wondering, what, what on earth was that? You haven't failed in your obedience to the Great Commission. God has, shim- has simply shifted your assignment. And so we see you and we love you. Keep saying yes. 
And thirdly, to the rest of us, ask God today to send you. Just stop, just, Lord, send me. Send me. It might be to Google, it might be to AISD, it might be to stay at home with kids, it might be to go to Lebanon or Thailand or Turkey or Tangiers or Tarrytown, but ask him to send you. And then commit your yes to whatever he asks. Today, go find our For the Nations team out in the foyer. Find a way to get involved with and connected to the global context of this commission. Because if he sends you here locally, good, but the, 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 the context is still global. And so today, read that field guide. Investigate joining one of our advocacy teams. Uh, think about giving financially to the work. Commit to go to prayer, but do something to expand your context. By all means, please obey the Great Commission here, but also make sure that you have a way to help us obey it globally. Last one, last one. The covenant of the commission. See, the Great Commission is like a great sandwich. I'm I'm trying not to eat carbs, can you tell? Everything's like a sandwich. Um, the, The stuff in the middle is so good, right? But it's actually the top and the bottom that holds it all together. The instructions are held together by two incredible promises. Look at the first one. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Through the resurrection, Christ showed his supremacy over all things. And so now we can participate with him knowing that we cannot ultimately lose. (laughs) Many of us see authority today as a bad thing, and I get it, right? We've seen what it's like in the wrong hands. But in the hands of Christ? Come on. He has all authority. Now we can throw our fates into his hands with reckless abandon and total freedom because nothing in the world escapes his authority. With his resurrection, he has announced the beginning of his ultimate rule and reign over the cosmos. And while we long for the the full fulfillment of that and while we see ongoing painful evidence of the darkness's pushback, we know that even those things ultimately have to yield and exist under his rule and reign. With that context, friends, we can simply say yes to his command. Go make disciples, yes, Lord, send me. Why? You've got nothing to lose because he's already won. Why? You've got nothing to prove because it's all about his kingdom. Why? You've got nothing to fear because the gates of hell will not prevail. But look at the other promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's scary to reorient your life around a new meaning and a new purpose. I get it. That's so scary. But it's way less scary when you consider that the God of the universe will be with you as you do it. My wonderful young daughter, Katie, gets scared sometimes at night. And so what does she do? She comes and cuddles her dad. It's hilarious to me. And then she just feels better. Talk about misplaced trust. I'm like, you think you're scared? Holy smokes. I'm scared, right? But for some reason, she feels safe when she's like, okay, you're just with me. Now think about the God of the universe who structures this in covenantal language and says, I will never leave you, right? I'm gonna be with you even to the end of the age. But listen, listen carefully. The promise is covenantal. It's that he will be with us as we obey his commission, right? To make disciples. It is those who give their yes to live in obedience to this great call that a promise of unceasing presence is given. You see it? 
You want to experience the powerful nearness of God? I do. You know what the best way to do it is? Give him your ongoing yes to his great commission. Do his work, you'll experience his power. (laughs) Obey his call, you will experience his presence. And so, dear friends, as we close out our study in the Gospel of Matthew, I wanted to just remind you of the reality of its claims. Just stop for a sec. In the complexity of your life, just get back to this reality. Jesus Christ of Nazareth really lived. He was really born of the Virgin Mary and he really existed as the world's only sinless man. He really taught of his very real kingdom and he really invited outcasts to participate in the fullness of that kingdom, including you and I. He really interrupted the natural order with miracles of the divine reality in the world to come. He really died a brutal death and it was really for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He really rose, like really rose, like for realsy, for realsy rose and really appeared to his doubting followers. He really gave us the great commission and he really promised to be with those who obeyed it and he really has been, as this message has gone from 120 terrified believers to billions of followers around the globe. He really instructed us to keep it going and he really is coming back and if we take him at his word, it really will be soon and so don't waste your life go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and the holy spirit and teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and behold i am with you always to the very end of the age give him your yes you'll change your life father god thank you so much for your word thank you that it's true Thank you that we've got to study it in detail over years. Thank you for how you've reminded us of the reality of the life and the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to live faithfully in a reflection of that reality. Father, forgive me for so often trying to accommodate Jesus in my life instead of committing to being his disciples. Father, so often I want you to follow me into my life more than I want to follow you into the life that you have for me. Forgive me for my faithlessness. Lord, today, help me help us be a people who say, oh, yes, send me, Lord. Lord, I don't want to move again. The last one was stressful enough. But you have my yes, Father, send me. Send me. To make disciples, send me, Father. As I go, as we baptize, as we teach, send me, I'm here. Father, I pray that we as a church today would put our collective yes on the table. That we'd see our lives as in your hands, that we'd see our purpose as making disciples of Jesus. And as a result, we'd experience your presence like never before. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.